Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Are you worried about democracy? I have to confess, I am a bit worried about democracy. That's why I listen to a wonderful podcast called Democracy Works. It's run by the fabulous people at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. The podcast aims to rise above partisan politics and the daily news grind to take a broader look at issues impacting democracy. These are things we cannot ignore. You can go to www.democracyworkspodcast.com and subscribe in all kinds of ways. Or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. We really love this podcast at the NBN and so much so that we are going to provide you with a little taste of what you can get at Democracy Works. I hope you enjoy the following episode. By obliterating facticity, by obliterating our access to a shared world of facts and events, by delegitimating, you know, expert staffed agencies that create basic data and knowledge, what it really does is incapacitate our ability to disagree, to argue, to decide, and and to adopt effective policies, whether they're liberal or conservative. We really do want to call on people to use their common sense. In, in responding to, to things that seem too fabulous to be true. They, they just very well might be untrue. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Janice Benelli. And welcome to the fourth season of Democracy Works. A new season, guys. Here we are. After our summer break. doesn't feel like it. It's like 90 <laughs> degrees outside. <laughs> and it doesn't feel like much of a break. But, you know, we owe it to our listeners to come back and give, and given the condition of, a, of democracy around the world, we should keep going. So Democracy hasn't gotten much better this summer. doesn't seem it? to have. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. So today on the show, uh, we're going to start off by talking about conspiracy theories and what our guests argue is a new form of conspiracism. Um, joining yeah, us. It's conspiracy without the theory. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and joining us to help unpack that are uh, Russell Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum, who are the authors of a new book called A Lot of People Are Saying the New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. Uh, Russell is the Robert Clemens Professor of Democracy and Politics at Dartmouth College, and Nancy is a Senator Joseph Clark Research Professor of Ethics and Politics and Government at Harvard. So uh, two very well-regarded experts in this field, and uh, we, we are very fortunate to have them on the show for this conversation. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrific book. And a great title. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The conspiracy theories have uh, deep roots in American politics. It was really interesting. They yeah. actually mentioned that it goes all yeah. the way back to the revolution, that there was a kind of conspiracy dimension to that, which I really hadn't thought of, but uh, it makes sense to me. And okay. let's face it, I mean, and they they speak to this, but there's, it's not distrust of government, uh, distrust of authority is um, a is also a part of American identity and and really a kind of legitimate part. Oh, we have of, a constitution of, designed to fragment power. Exactly, yeah. and so it is not that far 
from distrust to conspiracy and and trying to figure out where one, where you go from legitimate to illegitimate is part of the, the problem that they set out in the book. What I think that uh, these authors are identifying and which the president is, plays a big role in is this idea that conspiracy theories these days seem not to be an effort to explain something that has actually happened, but rather are just kind of created out of whole cloth. So, you know, for example, there have been conspiracy theories still today in American politics about who shot the president Kennedy. Right. But President Kennedy was shot. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we know that that event happened, and and it's kind of understandable that people would think, oh, you know, one guy with a rifle couldn't do this or has to be... There has to be more to it. Or the moon landing. We know there was something we saw on TV. Was it faked? Right. Or was it was it real? Or, or the folks, you know, were these guys from Saudi Arabia single-handedly able to bring down the, the right, World right. Trade Right, the, the 9-11 truthers. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, but we know that the trade towers right. came down, mm-hmm. and we know that the Pentagon was was was, uh, was attacked. But but now, you know, if you look at something like Pizzagate, which is an example they use in mm-hmm. the book, here's a conspiracy, this idea that there was a uh, child prostitution ring uh, being run out of a pizza parlor in Washington. And this was John Podesta and Hillary Clinton. And Hil- Podesta and Hillary yeah, Clinton yeah. They had nothing better to do. I mean, this is created out of whole cloth. There's, yeah. There was no there there. Right. It wasn't like there was an arrest. It wasn't like there was a witness. It wasn't like there was a child. And they and just it, made it up. And it's it, it's really you know we have to just acknowledge this is just how crazy this idea is. You know this this uh, these. It's interesting that this book was written by these two authors because when you look at their previous work. Uh, most of it had to do with political parties right. in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, part, they're party scholars, right. political theorists, but party scholars. Mm-hmm. And part of their uh, motivation in writing this book has to do with their concern about how the idea of a loyal opposition party is being destroyed through these sorts of conspiracies and that, you know, that the, the other side are criminals, the other side are whatever they have no legitimacy they have no legitimacy they have no legitimacy not just as polit- as as partisans but as human beings well maybe we ought to hear from them i i think that's a good idea yeah This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Nancy Rosenblum and Russell Muirhead. Uh, Nancy and Russ, thanks for joining us today on Democracy Works. Delighted to be here. So you guys are the authors of a new book that's all about conspiracies and conspiracism. Um, You know, conspiracy theories have been around uh, as long as the... U.S. itself. And you you talk about that um, a little bit in the book. But uh, you also argue that we are now in a new era of conspiracism. And I thought that that might be a good place to start. Um, what What is this new era as you see it? And, and how is it different from what we've seen in the past? Well, in the past, we've had conspiracy theory. That is an explanation that works the way any explanation works, which is in terms of evidence and dots and patterns that often try to make the unbelievable believable and the inconceivable conceivable. What we have now is conspiracy without the theory. That is, the two things have become decoupled. And we have claims of a conspiracy that come without the tots, without the patterns, without the evidence, without the argument. When did you begin to see this pattern emerge? Well, uh, Nancy and I are scholars of parties and partisanship. And 
you know, parties were, were thought of as conspiracies before the age of uh, sort of the, the idea of a legitimate opposition took hold. That's how parties were, were conceived. That's, that's really what they were. So as scholars of parties, we began to take an interest in conspiracism and conspiratorial thinking. And, uh, and among the things we noticed, aside from its abundance and aside from the fact that it's moved from the periphery to the center of, of at least American politics, um, we also began to notice that, um, that, that, that today's conspiracism involves um, sort of bare assertion, um, maybe like a one-word accusation like rigged, instead of an effort to carefully explain the world as it is. It, it's, it's more of an effort to impose um, a, a, a kind of unreality, a, 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 um, an idiosyncratic understanding of the world on others, rather than to describe the world as it is. And instead of being an act of empowerment, which is what conspiracy theory tries to do, empower people by describing the way the world is, it's an act of power. It's an effort to impose one uh, person or one side's distorted view of things on everyone. Yeah, and and I think we can think about and you know, maybe just to, to draw some some examples here to give people a more uh, concrete idea of of what we're talking about. Um, you know, I think about and and I think you guys write about in your book to the, for example, the nine eleven truther movements versus something like Pizzagate. Um, is is that a fair way of of kind of drawing a, a distinction between sort of the former model of of conspiracy thinking and 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 what we're seeing now? And and can you talk about what what the difference is between yeah. those those two models? That's exactly right, Jenna. Nine one one is an example of classic conspiracy theory, and there are accounts that come from the left and the right about what really happened. It was really the Jews, or it was really an inside job. And they collect all kinds of technical evidence to try to make that claim about how the conspiracy happened and who its agents were. In contrast, we do have this conspiracy without the theory. And and an example that I'll give that really excited me into wanting this project came on the second day of Trump's uh, uh, presidency after the uh, inauguration, when he claimed that it was the biggest inaugural crowd ever. And when the National Park Service produced, you probably remember this, produced photos that showed the crowd to be much less large than he had claimed, he said that the National Park Service had doctored the photographs. He had no evidence. He didn't have an argument. It was just a sheer assertion that this, that there had been a conspiracy to show or to make it appear as if his inauguration was less spectacular than President Obama's. And it was at that point that I think we both began to realize that one of the real consequences of this conspiracy without the theory, and you probably experienced this, Janet, is, was a radical disorientation, a radical disorientation. It was a claim, Russ talked about imposition of power. It was a claim about that he owned reality, that the conspiracists owned reality. And we were left thinking, well, who does own reality? And it creates, I think, a polarization between people <laughs> claiming that they own their reality and the another based on evidence and argument. That's a polarization that's deeper even than partisan polarization. 
Right. And and the 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 goal, if I understand it correctly, is is not necessarily to get people to believe every word of of these new conspiracy theories, but it's more so just to like sow confusion and 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 general distrust of of the institutions and 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 the media and the, the people who are providing information. Yeah, I think that is. Um, you know, often often the goal. Um, it's certainly not to to equip us to really understand our world so that we can navigate our way, you know, control, you might say, our, our fate more successfully. Um, you know, that classic conspiracism, it starts with something in the world that many people have a hard time understanding. The example you brought up, 9-11 truthers, I mean, they start with the fact that it's really hard to explain how 19 people in Afghanistan created this world historical event culminating in an invasion by the United States of Iraq, those are, those, you know, are not easy events to explain. The cause seems really small compared to the effect. Pizzagate, the other example you mentioned, it, I mean, what is that trying to explain? Or, or the, the, the park size controversy? Uh, it's not as though there are thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people who are confused about the size of the crowd at the inauguration. Um, it doesn't take a world that's hard to explain and make it more understandable. It, it takes a world that's shared, that's transparent, and, and makes it one that, as Nancy said, is very disorienting um, and, and very confusing. And ultimately is, is, is not only disorienting, it's very disempowering. Sure. Uh, so do you guys have a sense of what the scale is here? I mean, w- how many people or what proportion of of the US population tends to support this this conspiratorial type of thinking or 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 tends to let find these these claims as valid or you know tends to to get behind some of these conspiracy theories? We haven't done a sociological study of these things. What we know from people who have um, is that other kinds of conspiracism have very large followers. Uh, you know, the, the, the hoaxes that are out there or the flat earthers and so on and so forth. Um, our sense here is that the people who are taken up by these political conspiracist claims are probably not a very large number. But what's interesting about it is that they... Um, they think, and, and they don't necessarily have to believe every element of the claim. The phrase that we use that I think is helpful is that they find these claims true enough. They're true enough. Even if they're not followed by, uh, supported by evidence, they're true enough for them. And that means that subscription to these claims really is more a form of political participation than the kind of belief in the accuracy of the claims that conspiracy theory tries to generate. And by lowering the bar, by even, by even um, just obliterating the question of what do I really believe, what do I have evidence for believing, and replacing it with a question that's more connected to like political identity, what am I willing to sort of say, it's creating um, a new kind of schism in, in the political world, not just a a difference between sort of liberals and conservatives, the polarization that we've become very accustomed to is because it's creating a kind of like epistemic polarization where we no longer share uh, a world of facts and events. That explains the title of our book. A lot of people are saying that the validation of these claims 
has nothing to do with argument or evidence or dots or patterns. It has to do with the number of followers. And that's, I think that explains part of the importance of social media for this kind of conspiracism. I mean, it's obvious that it, uh, you know, increases the scope of it and the, uh, the speed of the spread of these things and so on. But these tweets and Facebook likes and so on actually allow you to measure that a lot of people are saying this. Right. <laughs> it gives you a kind of plausible measure of something that's completely implausible. Russ, you mentioned uh, just a minute ago the idea of epistemic polarization. Can, can you just explain what that is for folks who might not be familiar with that term? Epistemic polarization bears on whether we think something really happened or, or didn't really happen. You know, it gets at the basic factual question of how many people were there on the Washington Mall on that particular day of the inauguration. And, and once we can't even agree on the most elemental and brute facticity, the most sort of elemental aspects of our shared reality, it starts to become really hard, not just to compromise, it becomes really hard even to disagree intelligibly with each other. And another aspect of the, of the new conspiracism that, that really interests Nancy and me is the way that it increasingly focuses on knowledge producing institutions, like, like almost apolitical agencies of the government that are staffed by technical experts and are charged with illuminating elemental facts, elemental data, and, and publicizing data, maybe about the uh, climate, maybe, um, as Nancy said, maybe about um, the unemployment rate. And, and increasingly, um, the accusations say that the, like the, the economists at the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the climate scientists in the National you know, Weather whatever Agency are are conspiring to generate fraudulent pseudo data, and uh, and what this does is it is it delegitimates huge swaths of 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 government. In fact, the least political, least ideological aspects of government, and um, and and that you know if it succeeds at sort of delegitimating these knowledge producing institutions. Um, it's going to have, I think, we we fear that it's going to have a very corrosive effect. Sure, and I, I mean, I think to to the point about creating confusion, all these things tend to just it, it allows existing power structures to stay in place. In the case of climate change, it kind of kicks the can down the road, and and it, it makes it much harder to to take action on some of these larger scale issues. Let me um, just just um, explain, if I can, very very briefly. The difference between sowing confusion, which it certainly does, you're right, and uh, causing distrust of agencies and, and uh, people who make claims, which it certainly does, and what we claim, which is that it delegitimizes institutions. Because delegitimation goes beyond both of those things. It says that this agency this, or, or these, this political party, whatever, has lost all meaning value and authority, that it doesn't deserve compliance, right? And delegitimation really is the complete obliteration of the moral or political authority of a group or an institution. And, uh, you know, we don't know very much. We know quite a bit about how in growing democracies you, you legitimate government agencies and institutions and parties. We don't have much experience with this kind of delegitimation of an established democratic system. And we certainly don't know how to re-legitimate it. 
it's not as if the the people seeking to delegit- delegitimize these institutions are offering up something in its place, right? It is just just about the the sheer kind of taking away of of authority and and things like that. Is is that right? That's such a you know I think such an astute observation, Jenna. It, it, it's it, we we don't see um, you know kind of a worked out kind of theory or, or comprehensive um, agenda behind the new conspiracism. Its its impulse is very destructive, almost essentially destructive. Uh, that's why uh, you know we say I think that the new conspiracism is potent, but at the same time it's politically sterile. The phrase we've adopted is that it's D all the way down, that it's destabilizing, degrading, deconstructing, delegitimating, without any real countervailing constructive impulse. Okay, so, you know, you, I think, could take a very pessimistic view of this, as we are sometimes wont to do um, on this podcast, uh, and, and think that, you know, things are already kind of past a tipping point or, or past a line of demarcation, that the the Trump administration has already done so much to advance these delegitimation claims and created an environment where they can be successful and and thrive and all of these things. So, you know, given that environment, do you think that there's still an opportunity for things to go in a different direction? You know, one of the things that I think um, Nancy and I, I think is really crucial is that, um, People who really care about politics, let's say conservatives, who, who really have an agenda, that, that they understand that this this force, the new conspiracism, which might seem to 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 help their cause in in the first act, ends up destroying it in the conclusion. Uh, let me give you an example. What the new conspiracism often does is it just kind of remakes the the, the political world so as to obliterate all bad facts, all facts that are that cause ambiguity or embarrassment, say, to your own cause. Mm-hmm. So so let's say, I don't know, Hillary Clinton's running against Donald Trump for the presidency, and you think on balance, all things considered, you know, Trump is the better person to vote for. What, what Pizzagate does is it takes that considered decision and, um, and, and, um, and exaggerates it by showing Hillary Clinton to be the repository of all evil. She is torturing, trafficking in children, torturing children. She's worse than a Nazi. She's not just the the less preferable candidate, all things considered. She's evil. And it removes all ambiguity and increases certainty. So that might seem something like Pizzagate to, to, you know, to assist the conservative cause in the first act. It might seem like this is helping the effort to, say, elect a Republican. But by obliterating facticity, by obliterating our access to a shared world of facts and events, by delegitimating, you know, expert staffed agencies that create basic data and knowledge, what it really does is incapacitate our ability to disagree, to argue, to decide, and and to adopt effective policies, whether they're liberal or conservative. And it, it undermines even you know our effort to have any kind of government, a conservative government, a liberal government, a moderate government. And that's how it destroys the cause in the end. So so Nancy and I are, you know, we're hopeful that, gosh, if we can if we can sort of reveal how how universally destructive this is, that that um people will understand that 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 it's not friendly to any cause. 
and that partisan officials will be more um, courageous in standing up to it. So I want to talk about the the media for a second here. So what what role do they play in in helping to or or maybe not helping to spread some of the the new conspiracism? I think it, on the one hand you could say that maybe. Uh, by bringing some of these things to light, they're helping people, you know, understand what's what's going on and and helping try to provide a a glimpse into how other people think. But I think also you could say that they, um, you know, but the more that these stories get reported, the more traction they get, and the more likely they are to spread. So what what should the the media's approach be I mean, in terms of know, covering these theories? When we refer now, of course, to the media, we're, we're no longer referring to just those uh, enterprises with, uh, you know, professional gatekeepers, producers, um, and, and, and editors who decide what's worthy of being disseminated to millions and millions of people. The, the new media, uh, including social media, allows anybody to say anything to everyone in the whole world for free. And, and it's that power, it's that you might call it a kind of Gutenberg effect, um, that is facilitating the new conspiracism. So it's really not the traditional media. It's not BBC or the New York Times or what's called the mainstream media, which is just the media with gatekeepers that's in any way responsible for this. Um, you know, we think that that there's a few little things that, that are worth reminding uh, responsible reporters and editors and producers about. One is just that this is not theory, that this new conspiracism shouldn't even be given the kind of authority that the word theory conveys. We should refer to this as you know, invention and concoction, which is what it is, um, and uh, and 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 you know. Secondly, I guess we, we do want to um, we we want to in, inspire um, you know confidence in those sections of the media that that still have have gatekeepers that that the common sense of citizens of readers of viewers might in the end prevail. And, and that the kind of evidentiary, evidentiary approach to, to what gets disseminated, what gets broadcast, what gets printed, uh, in the end, you know, might win out in spite of all, in spite of, in spite of all that there is to be discouraged about. Sure. And on, on the social media point, I know there's, I think uh, some of these conversations are for sure happening behind closed Facebook groups and on, you know, message boards and other other outlets where they're kind of closed off in and of themselves. But there there are other places I think we can all probably conjure, you know, seeing comments on Facebook or or threads on Twitter where where some of these the the new conspiracism is is kind of being debated. And so for what what are some good strategies there? Or is it even worth trying to engage with people who are, are, are out there spreading these messages? Well, this is a, a hard question. Um, I think that there have been attempts to try to take some sort of people like Alex Jones, who's not just a, a conspiracist and often the sort of entrepreneur who authors some of these things, uh, but also you know is engaged in defamation and threatening if indirectly, the lives of people and so on and so forth. So there has been some attempt to censor this. And this, of course, is countered with the view that this is a conspiracy against the right. Um, I, 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 I don't know that social media can be uh, used for uh, to really counter all of this. As I say, I think that what's important about social media for this kind of conspiracism is, is just uh, the numbers of people who like and retweet and tweet and so on and so forth. Because it's what gives, it's a form of 
political participation that gives them gratification and it gives validation to these crazy claims. I would say that there are some studies that show that it's not just social media, that we shouldn't uh, put all of our emphasis on it in trying to explain what happens. That Fox News, for example, has enormous audiences and enormous audiences of people who aren't necessarily paranoid and conspiracists or even going along with this stuff. And insofar as this is the news they get, or insofar as this is the discussion or the news that goes on in local you know, channels, where most people still get their news through these things, um, it's, it's uh, dangerous and unstoppable so long as these are privately owned corporations that find that uh, you know, their, their, uh, their uh, profits go up yeah. when they do this. And let's, let's differentiate between two populations. One, that, that really gives itself over to, um, to a kind of conspiracist concoction. The, 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 the population that includes the person, for instance, who went to the pizzeria in Washington to, with an assault rifle that he fired to self-investigate the Pizzagate allegations. So there's that population that, that really seems to believe it. But then there's a larger population that is just disoriented, as Nancy says, and that is at risk, not so much of believing it, but of not knowing what to believe. And, and that's the population that we, have to, that we have to fight for. You know, evidence, I think, increasingly suggests that things like fact-checking and corrections does work and can work. Um, at, at disempowering misinformation in the minds of readers and, and viewers. And, and so I think, you know, standing up for common sense, appealing to common sense, insisting on evidence, calling something a lie that is a lie, um, and, and, you know, not using a word like theory for something that is no kind of theory might make a big difference with that much larger audience that's at risk of disorientation, not necessarily of belief. Can you just expand a little bit more on on how you perceive common sense or, or or how it applies in this context? Well, we're not we're not using it in some deep philosophical way because there are debates about common sense in, in uh, philosophy and epistemology. I think uh, you know we took our notion of common sense from Tom Paine's great pamphlet, Common Sense, right, in which he argued that people have certain kinds of common experiences and a common moral horizon, and that if they can stand by their this experience of themselves that they can have a kind of confidence in their experience and in what they know and in uh, the moral horizon that they share then they can resist people who claim to own a different reality and you know we might say looking back to uh, the the dawn of democracy and thomas paine and his essay is that you know modern democracy is founded on this conviction that that the, you might say, if you don't want to use the word common sense, the epistemic capacities of ordinary citizens are sufficient for, for them to, to understand the world in a way that equips them to make good decisions. We believe that, that this basic capacity is, we, we share the faith that it's widely distributed across the entire population and, and that it can prevail. And, and so we, we really do want to call on people to use their common sense in, in responding to, to things that seem um, uh, too fabulous to be true. They, they just very well might be untrue. 
Well, I think that is probably as optimistic of a note as we're going to to get here to to end this. But no, I, I think I think your your book and 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 indeed a lot of what we're trying to do on this podcast are are just that to to empower people to 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 use their common sense and you know put that to to work to to do the hard work of of democracy. Uh, thank you both for for your uh, contribution to this work and for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Jen. This was terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jen. All right. So uh, this is Chris and Michael. We're back. Uh, Really impressive interview. Uh, A lot lot to chew on there. Um, Michael, the the point that I uh, really wanted to stress with them and that I thought they really hit out of the park was this idea of uh, a democratic common sense. Well, also the idea that the you know democracy is founded on the idea that ordinary citizens have the capacity to understand things and make decisions. The other part is that there is um, this presumption of a common resource, both factual and moral, that allows us, that is necessary for us to have politics at all. Really, really speaks to the uh, sort of dangers of this very siloed, fragmented kind of media environment we're in, where one side seems to listen to one set of right. media, pay attention to one set of media, and the other another. Right, and and not to mention, you know, the, the number of people who have just kind of made this their industry. Alex Jones is very wealthy. You know, let's not be, let's not deny this, despite the fact that he is a cancer on the civic culture. But well, this, political leaders ought to be saying that. They ought I mean, to It doesn't be. really Absolutely. mean anything for us to it, say. It's, it's easy, right? But no, you're right. And, uh, and to disown it and to and, – and it doesn't and, and, matter whose mouth it comes out of. Anytime it comes out of somebody's no, mouth. it does matter. It matters. I, I think they're very clear that it matters because they have this idea of what they call enacting democracy or democracy as pedagogy. And their argument there, as, as I understood it, is that public officials of all types, judges, congresspeople, bureaucrats, yeah. have a responsibility these days to explain in some detail how it is that they're making decisions. In other words, to be talking about the, uh, the entire process of legislating, prosecuting, regulating, investigating, whatever it is they're doing, walking through that there, that there are fair processes here, that there, that there are... They're grounded uh, in, in law. Right, that they have value. Right. That there's a reason we do this, that, that, that there needs to be a kind of instruction. You know, it's really striking. Uh, one, 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 one thing I've been thinking of, and they, they talk about this a bit in their book, I, I, I've thought about it a lot at other times too, has to do with these two FBI officials officials that were, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, fired, essentially, in the midst of the Mueller investigation, and the idea that these two people could have come up with this whole scheme by themselves. And and at least one of them in his testimony, and, and they point to this example, made the point, you know, bureaucracies are set up as hierarchies. There are all these people above me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how we set up for democratic accountability. Right. I don't have the ability right. to do this by myself. I'm overseen at multiple steps, and those people are overseen, and those people are overseen. Mm-hmm. And that this is a responsibility that officials have to have in this day and age. So I think there's this, there's this interesting combination of, um, you know, both – despairing about the condition of a democracy right now and also just trying to reclaim the high ground that democracy um, 
that's part of democracy, right? So on the one hand, you have this kind of, you know, this conspiracy, this conspiracism is undermining the 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 commonality that that the democracy depends on. But at the same time, they're saying, but there's nothing special. There's nothing, you know, particularly. There's no requirement to you to be part of this. If you just um, own your standing as a, a regular person and and um, reflect responsibly on your own experiences, then you are part of this common sense that democracy requires. Let's actually end on, on, on I think you bring up a really important issue there that speaks to issue speaks to something larger than the conspiracism. You know, so they speak in the book about the crisis of democracy uh, being this sort of disorientation that people right. nobody, but also the delegitimation of the opposition party, for example, and other institutions. And this is something, we've talked about this before, we are just seeing one institution in American political life after another being absolutely decimated and and turned into a sort of partisan partisan target. These people are out to, they have a partisan agenda, and that's their their sole agenda. It started during the campaign when the president was uh, saying that a Hispanic judge could not rule Mm -hmm. on the case having to do with... uh, Trump University, because of course he's Hispanic. It has to do with the idea that the FBI can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 courts have been constantly attacked. These are my judges. And do you have or any they're not my, are they Obama judges? Do you have right the, that that idea? Mm-hmm. Do you have any confidence in the census anymore? Right, right, right. Uh, no, I think that's right. And uh, you know, I think one thing we're going to realize when uh, when when this administration is done is how much the federal bureaucracy has both been decimated and hollowed out mm-hmm. and has just lost any kind of standing in American life. I'm just as pessimistic about this as you I'm are. but a little bit more pessimistic now than I've been in a very long yeah, time. Yeah, it is. It's not, it's not great out there. But, um, but I, I like the fact that they speak directly to um, the moral argument for democracy. Yes. And the fact that we still see those arguments manifested yeah. and that they're worth not just reclaiming, but they're worth uh, insisting upon. Yeah. I think we should mention as well that this is a beautiful book to read. It is, it, it is just wonderfully written. It is fairly short. It's not dense at all. I, and I was really captivated by it. No, these are, these are very well-respected scholars, and, and this is a, a, a genuine contribution to our public debate. Right yeah, now. really quite important yeah. work. For the McCourney Institute for Democracy, uh, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. This has been Democracy Works. Democracy Works.